What's up, everyone? Welcome to a very special episode of Theory Underground. This is the launch event for Theory Underground from December 6th, 2022. This launch event, I talk about the vision and goal of Theory Underground. I get a little bit into the name change from Theory Plebe to Theory Underground and why I'm doing that instead of New Symbolization Publishing. And I announce the three courses that Theory Underground is kicking off for the beginning of 2023. These are all courses that I am doing in conjunction with other people who also have experience teaching, but more importantly, they are people who I have been in a sustained form of dialogue and conversation with on the topics that we will be teaching for years, years and years and years. And so I'm really excited to be able to introduce you all to Elton, Brian, and Anne, as well as, of course, Michael Downs, all four of whom I'm teaching with in the next few months. The courses are officially already available at theory-underground.com. You can sign up for them there. I highly recommend that you do. And if you want to know more about those things, then I get into that after the halfway point of this podcast episode. For now, just be advised, there are some audio issues at various points with echoing from the people who are joining this event virtually, but we figured that out and we're able to make it work. So don't worry about it. The important stuff will be very clear. Thanks. Hope you enjoy. We're live. Hooray. Welcome, everybody. <laughs> So I'm David McCarricker. This is Theory Underground. This YouTube channel was recently called Theory Plebe, and it had been called that for years and years and years. And recently I sent out an email letting everybody know that Theory Plebe and New Civilization Project and Publishing were basically combining into Theory Underground. And I scheduled the launch of this event to coincide with my birthday mainly for one reason only. And that is so that you would all come to the launch. (laughs) Yeah, it worked. And I also spent the last month while Anne and I were in Europe doing a lot of development of the website. So really quick, folks in the chat, Mikey, Andrew, Marilyn, are you able to see the window that I'm sharing? And chat. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And uh, whoever's in the chat, do let us know that you can hear everything okay. It's always good to get that confirmation early on. Um, I don't know if anybody has eyes on chat. I am trying to figure that out right now. But let's talk about what it means to. Oh, yeah. Sure enough, it looks like we're live on the chat. Somebody want to say if the sound is working all right? So the screen that I'm sharing here, everybody, and folks on the couch in the live audience here are also able to see it, though it's not like super big or anything. This is basically the website, and it's in the small version right now, meaning that um, this is basically what you'd be seeing on mobile, as opposed to the more full screen view that would show the navigation across the top of the screen. Uh, But on mobile, you can just click this little thing here. And then you'll see publications, courses, and forums. We'll talk about those later. Also, it's got my my full uh, proper name right there uh, for my account. So in a minute, Ann and I are going to talk a little bit about our trip because this is also coinciding with our going away party. 
This is us leaving from Boise to Reno and then Mexico. We just got engaged. Um, and so do you want to come sit? Sure. sit nice. you? <laughs> this is Anne, everybody. I, most of you already know her. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you all like a quick little tour of the website and stuff like that. But first, I'm just gonna say a couple of things. the The name Theory Underground was a double entendre, and then it became a triple entendre when we were in Europe. And so, a double entendre is when something has two meanings, and usually like on purpose, and usually like it might be a little risque or something like that. But Theory Underground means that Theory Plebe went underground. Theory Plebe became Theory Underground. But it also means like the underground, like the music underground, it's like a scene, right? Whatever I've done, wherever I've been, I always try to cultivate some kind of like a scene or whatever with the people that I'm working with, usually around philosophy and theory, but I've also done sustainable gardening, farming kinds of stuff, slacklining clubs, whatever, whatever it is, wherever we are, some kind of something going on. And to call it the theory underground and to kind of play off of the idea of the underground music scene, there's a special kind of meaning patch in there that we can get into. But then the other meaning comes from London. Because when you're in London, all of the trains, it's just called the underground. So that's actually where the logo on, as you can see up there, the little circle, pink circle that says Theory Underground. That's just the logo for all the underground trains in London. We stole it and made it pink. <laughs> <laughs> we made it black and pink and added Theory in front. And so it's just Theory Underground. And there was this time, like at the beginning of this year, where everything I was doing with web stuff was going to be free, where everything was going to be done in a way where it was as open source as possible. And where the idea was is that everyone, insofar as they want to be able to have a platform to put their voice out there, but also develop themselves and to build educational content for themselves and for their community, should be able to. And I was kind of holding myself to the standard of if I can't make it so that everyone can do it, then I'm not going to do it. And I've had those kinds of ideas a few times. And I work under that assumption for a while. Like there was the idea of like, oh, I'm going to do something, but only if everyone else can do it. Right. I've had various versions of that, but this web version was something newer. And I've experimented with different web concepts with different developers in the past. And I even like tried to learn how to code at one point. Um, and, and the long story short is, Wix and uh, what's the famous one, Squarespace, and also actually programming it from the bottom up. These things are all, on the one side, they cover everything and they make it easy for you, but then you don't have ownership over any of your own stuff, or you don't have the kind of flexibility that you might need as a, as a growing um, platform. And on the other side, there's too much time and energy put into something just to be independent just to save money. Saving money can be a huge time and energy sinkhole, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was while we were in Europe that I was basically like pulled the plug and decided, no, I'm going to actually start spending money. I'm going to actually just fork over as much money as possible to make the actual kind of website that, we, that is needed to do what I need. And so the basic idea of like what the website is to, to do what I need it to do, I need a way of commun communicating with everyone here and everyone online who's been participating in the conversations that I'm having with professors or with Mikey or where I'm giving lectures to make it so that the conversation doesn't just live in the comment sections of like these public YouTube videos to where it becomes, oh, this is like a, 
a YouTube community, right? And I can't do the Discord thing either because there's so many things about Discord that require people to be constantly in it, constantly up to date, which is also a problem with group messaging. And so usually the people who are the deepest in research and writing uh, or developing their own course content, like Elton, for example, has two podcasts and a, also a local group that meets. And so it's like the people who are really, really busy with this kind of stuff can't keep up with the attention grabby, constantly keeping you busy kinds of platforms like Discord, like Facebook Messenger, et cetera. So there's that need there. We need, we, we need something else, kind of like a forum or something. But then another need that presented itself in my experience is that if you are thoughtful and reflective and not going to jump in, jump forward with your thoughts on everything the first time around when you're going through a class, there might be a couple other people who speak up a lot and you might appreciate them and maybe you don't. But you yourself, you're, you're not, you're, you need time to, to think about the stuff that you've gone over then to go over it again, thinking about it more. Well, the problem is, is that sometimes by the time you actually want to revisit the course content, you're already out of college. That conversation from uh, like philosophy 101, it's gone. You can't stay in that conversation. We'll play the video. Uh, I hope it will work on the YouTube side, everybody. But we'll play this video um, that we just recorded this week and edited and published where it's like an interview with Bert. But one of the things that he talks about is the advantage that we actually have, we being people who are post-doctoral um, post or you know, post-grad, some kind of graduated person who doesn't have to deal with high school, probably doesn't have to deal with college, um, might be between high school and college, might be retired. Um, but the point is, is that you know, most content in the influencer sphere, but also in the academic institutions, assumes students who are on their way to a career. And philosophy or theory might be something that you want to get into after you have your career under you or behind you, right? Or, or once you have the basic, you know, you've got the processes in order and you've got a desk job and you kind of, you're used to this job. Now you're finally getting into a place where you're like, okay, I'm ready to dive into some books, but I want to do it not just in a discussion group where everyone's going to sit there and talk. I also want that sort of, I want the instructional uh, component I want someone responsible for showing up prepared to actually go over the lay of the land to talk about what was in that reading so that if I, like me, when I'm working at Amazon and I'm listening to stuff, like I listen to a book or something like that, and then I come to a discussion for it, like what I'm hoping to get out of it is people actually clarifying what's there so that I can go, okay, that's what I thought that it was saying. But then I also want people to advance different interpretations, not just their own. And so one of the things that Bert talks about is the difference between the first reading, the second reading, and the third reading, right? You haven't really read something until you've read it three times when we're talking about very profound works. Okay. Well, that first reading is just to get the survey of the, of the territory. The second one is to basically put it into your own words, is to basically grasp it, right? And, and you might have read some secondary texts before coming back for that second read. But the third reading is where you run it up against everything else you know. And that might also be where the critique might begin. But the problem with almost every discussion group, as well as a lot of classes nowadays, is that people are skipping to the third step. 
without having really done the first or the second. And so what we hope is that this will be this sort of social media side of what we've got here is going to be a way of sustaining a discourse on various topics. And unlike Facebook or something like that, there will be a place that you can go where you know the only people who are a part of that conversation at least did the same basic prerequisites that you did. You don't even have that if you go to a lot of academic conferences. You can't really know that they're, that they're talking about these things, that, they, that they've read these things. And so this is for my own sake. First and foremost, I'm always going to be very selfish. This is what I need. I hope that in doing it, it will also prove to be useful for you. And then in the longer run, eventually, once this is all a finely oiled machine, anybody else who wants to do it for themselves should be able to do it for themselves because this is all ultimately stuff that I think anyone should be able to do. But for the next couple of years, I'm going to be focused on building this website specifically. Later on, maybe branch into, well, definitely branch into other things. And so, but okay, now let's back it off for a second. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I also expected that maybe in the next, like, uh, I mean, I, when I started this, I was thinking within the next 10 minutes, more and more people will trickle in. But I think we're actually where we are now, which is like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 people basically in this discussion. Everyone, every one of you is able to chime in, but let's start with like a quick little introduction. And so, um, We'll just go through this, but yeah, I'm David McCarricker, but my friends call me Dave and online. My nicknames are usually theory or plebe, usually plebe. Hi, I'm, <laughs> I'm Anne. I'm Dave's fiance and a fellow traveler interested in a lot of the stuff that Theory Underground is diving into. Um, I'm Elton LK. And um, as Dave mentioned, I have one podcast, um, the DSA Impact podcast. It's new called Class. And um, the producer of that, and I'm really excited about what that's, uh, where that's going, as well as I have a, a podcast on Gramsci called The Working Class Intelligentsia, essentially because I believe we need a working class intelligentsia. And then last, I have a philosophy group that have been facilitating for more than 10 years now and, and fortunate enough to have um, Dave and a handful of other people here as a part of that. Uh, and I'm Brian Weeks. Um, I guess I also fellow traveler. I like that, that term, yeah. um, an underground scholar. Maybe that's a way to put it. Um, I'm also a high school educator uh, teaching English, um, which will be relevant here in a little while. Um, and just kind of been around for a while, still getting my bearings straight. Brian and I have read a lot of books together. Mm. <laughs> when he heard the basic outlines of what I was doing with Theory Underground, he was like, it's basically still trying different ways of what you were trying with Victory Farm, which is what we were trying, you know, we were both, that's where we both come together on was uh, trying to do an in-person thing, right? That would have been placed in the Boise area. This is, yeah, just a, a, this, this version of things doesn't require me having roots because I've given up on the idea for the time being. Yeah, when we get around to talking about the idea of the university, 
uh, I'll share why I think this is a kick-ass idea. I'm really excited. Really? Yes. Nice. I think this is going to be really cool. Just really quick, can everyone online hear all of us just fine? The, all of us, were we just fine? Yep. Cool. Thanks, Marilyn. Anybody here want to introduce themselves or, I don't know, it's weird, but because you don't have a camera, you don't have a camera on you. John Alt Freeman, Wikipedian. <laughs> That's right. And generally an intellectual Swiss Army chainsaw. Intellectual Swiss Army chainsaw for, yes. for those not here. That's Kenneth, the Wikipedian. And uh, I'm Bert Vandercar. And uh, I've been doing stuff like this for about six years now. And uh, it's great. And I'm happy to see this uh, this experiment and public philosophy uh, maintained. And I just wanted to say one brief thing about the three readings that Dave outlined. Uh, that's an ideal. It's hard to live up to, but you're always doing all three of those approaches simultaneously. It's just that you have to keep doing it. And the more you comb over material, uh, the more each one of those is, uh, is enhanced. But uh, there is no royal road to uh, science, as it's been put. And, uh, but I just wanted to make sure that uh, people realize that reading really difficult works three times is pretty ambitious. But if you do just even a couple major works like that, You've uh, you've really uh, you've really drilled deeply into the source, and uh, I would just highly recommend that kind of strategy. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Patricia. And I'm here out of curiosity about what you're doing. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm always curious about what you're doing, and um, I retired, and I'm a poet. And so I'm on my own journey. I just, I read a couple of, quite a couple of things that you wrote, and it was, it was really engaging. And continue to Do you say you're tired or retired? Retired. Retired. She's <laughs> Well, I'm just tired. I wish I was retired. <laughs> cool. And the other of you want to? Uh, I'm Mason. I'm Bert's son. That's me. <laughs> That's me. Uh, good to have you, Mason. And I'm Matt. <clears throat> I've done stuff with Dave for quite quite a while now, from the Victory Farm days is whenever I first met Dave. So always interested in what he's working on and um, reading and talking about ideas. Cool. Let's go. Um, let's end with Mikey. How about we go Marilyn, Andrew, Nick? That is if you want to, Marilyn, or you can say pass. Yeah, yeah no, no, that's fine. I'm just, uh, <laughs> I don't know if my video is working or not here. My, my hair's all wet. <laughs> I'm Marilyn. I, um, I met Dave at a partially examined life conference. It was their first uh, live event back in 
I don't remember what year, but when uh, in Pittsburgh. And I um, have a master's in philosophy, but have joined the corporate world and um, never, well, I can't say I never returned. I've sort of had a foot in academia. You know, I taught um, philosophy as an adjunct for like eight years while working and have been publishing various things on the side. Um, very interested in philosophy outside of academia. I think it gives you a lot more freedom. Um, I've seen the inside <laughs> and it's not pretty. There's just too much academic politics, um, too many personalities who um, you know, influence interpretations of various philosophers. So I really love what you're doing and, um, you know, think it should stay underground. <laughs> Thank you. It's Andrew. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Andrew. For those of you who know me online, it's uh, Master Signified Bodies, a.k.a. the Big Sig, which is just a slang term for the Master Signifier. Um, I got into theory um last summer last, last uh i want to say may which uh dave got into contact with me on instagram because he saw my um <clears throat> little snippet videos of uh the lacan seminars that i was doing and he liked what i was doing he shared it with mikey and they had me on his channel and then you know they pretty much you know, thought that i was like i had some potential so they helped me start my channel and then along the roads, uh, they put me in touch with uh, Nick and we started doing our, uh, our little discussions on the seminars of Lacan and we decided to pretty much uh, wing it and film it. And so because of um, Dave and, and Mikey, uh, it motivated us to start our own channel called Kevoy, um, which it's usually Chevoy, I think. But it's Kevoy for us because Nick's Italian and I'm Mexican. So it's K in Spanish and then boy Italian. So it's a little, you know, play on words, play on language. But we go over the seminars of Lacan and, and other stuff too, other collabs. Like we're doing a Zizek one as well on a sublime object of ideology. And uh, yeah, um, that's how I met Dave. And I guess, you know, if I had to say what theory underground means to me, it's like, it's, it's definitely like they were saying, like an underground, almost like a different rail line, a different train you go through, different stops nearby, uh, meeting with different people at rest stops. Um, but yeah, and uh, I've never witnessed academia before in like real time, like uh, going to university. I've been in the military for about seven years. I'm in the Navy. Um, I do plan on going into academia, I guess, because I'm trying to uh, major in psychology and become a, a Lacanian analyst myself. Um, but I prefer learning theory underground. You know, if I have to say, you know, if I have to end it with something, and I think this is like a great way, that's something that isn't like just, um, you know, purely memes on IG or, or, or uh, influencer stuff on YouTube or just like listening to podcasts where there's no dialogue. I think this, this has a lot of potential. It's something that's different. It's something that's bringing people together. Um, somebody like Dave could just like throw something at the last minute, like literally bring Todd McGowan on within four hours, like, you know, after messaging us, like, you know, we're going to have Todd McGowan on, 
or we're gonna we're gonna film a set about stunts like within a day like and just make it happen you know that's that's something that's revolutionary and you know with something like that if, if you could just like throw something in the mix like that like who knows what we could do so hi nick hey y'all i'm nick castellucci i am the other half of kvoy which andrew just explained to you I am primarily interested in the intersection between Freud, Marx, psychoanalysis, critique of political economy, all that juicy stuff. And um, I met Dave maybe six months ago. Uh, you know, I had sought Mikey out first, but it's thanks to Dave that I found out about Mikey, you know, I um, discovered out of nowhere, it was recommended to me on YouTube, the Lacan series that Dave and Mikey were doing. And uh, yeah, suffice it to say, it changed my life. So after that, I was hooked. I knew I had heard this name Lacan before. I thought I had some associations in my mind with the figure but yeah that really just kind of exploded everything and um i contacted mikey about five months ago we had talked in 2021 contacted him uh told him a little bit about my interests and uh, you know he was gracious enough to bring me into the fold so to speak. And um, Dave introduced me to Andrew. As we all know, Dave is the catalyst for <laughs> a lot of really amazing things. I think that's like the through line of a lot of uh, these introductions. And uh, yeah, as, as Andrew said, like we just are winging it with these, these videos. We decided to film them and uh, people seem to be enjoying them. Uh, I really love the idea of Theory Underground for all of the reasons uh, mentioned thus far, but I think uh, what makes it especially appealing to me, and I have had some experience with academia. Um, I taught Italian as an adjunct for a short period of time. Now I'm an admin at a, universe, <clears throat> at a university in Philly. And, um, you know, I hear students um, make the same refrain again and again about reading. It's not that they dislike it, but they just have bad associations with it. You know, they feel like the repetitive nature of assignments and exams and studying for an exam has spoiled reading for them. So I like the idea of an underground, a kind of grassroots movement that brings in people who aren't necessarily um, the most up on this material, but you know makes them feel uncomfortable and uh, uncomfortable as a slip um, makes them feel comfortable and you know um, lets people know that later in life. Yeah. Uh, sorry, what did you say? 
Oh, I said uncomfortable in the right ways. In the right ways, exactly. Productively right uncomfortable. Yeah. And but like you know, um, also lets people know that like you can uh, learn to love reading again. Well, and you know, and a part of it's like you know, the, we we I think we can overcome some of the pressure and imposter syndrome that comes from grad school if you if you kind of take to heart this idea of, oh, like if you have to read something three times to say you've read it, then no, none of us have read anything almost, you know, like none of us, we're all babies, we're all babies. And so then there's some humility can come with that. The humility becomes arrogant. So when you see other people who've read something once running around downplaying, dismissing, misusing it, whatever, acting like they've got all these takes that now have the authority of having read something. And it's like, we're hoping, you know, to be able to make people feel more comfortable about not knowing uh, and, and, and being there to try to get a grasp, you know, as opposed to by the end of this thing, you're going to be hit with this exam and it's going to tell you whether or not you got it right. No, that's not how the humanities ought to be doing anything. So anyway, Mikey, take it away. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Downs. I go by Mikey. Uh, <laughs> I blog the Dangerous Maybe on Medium. Um, that's where I do all kinds of theoretical work, um, from line by line commentaries to blog posts where I try to introduce key concepts. Um, I've been working on that for let's see, almost what, three years, four years, something like that now. But um, besides that, I am often collaborate with Dave. Um, we've had a ongoing series of videos where we dive into the work, uh, or at least the concepts so far, the concepts of Lacan and Zizek. And yeah, uh, on top of that, Dave's become one of my best friends. That's the most important. But um, yeah, just doing the work of theory. Uh-huh. <clears throat> cool. Now that we've done introductions, let's just talk about things really like, okay, so before we talk much more about theory underground, and uh, I'll bring Mikey back in when we do talk a bit more about that, let's just talk about our trip so that we can <clears throat> tell people who are checking in for the first time in a year, people who got uh, an email or some notification online or someone who meant to be here in person and wasn't able to make it. Maybe someone who was here last year for the NSP. Um, oh, am Wait, I, no, oh, am I have, in your face? Oh, no, you said something right now. Oh, okay. I thought I was like <laughs> elbowing your face. No. <laughs> so like, yeah, what have people, what, what, what's, what's happened in the last year? Like, what have we done in the last year? We decided not to do new symbolization publishing, basically, right? The basic idea of it is is something that we're staying true to, but the the priorities have have somewhat changed. And part of that was just realizing I'm going to basically do most of the heavy lifting, most of the programming and development, most of that stuff on my own. But Anne's been an absolute, like, without you in the last, like, two, three months, I, I, nothing I got done in the last month would have been possible. Yeah. 
And we just went to Europe. And went to Europe. Went to Finland, Poland, Germany, France, London. Most of the time was spent in Finland, like half. And then the other half, the other four countries. And what did we do there? Oh, gosh, we did all sorts of things. I mean, the main reason we even bought these tickets and went on this trip was because we have some friends. One is from Boise. One is from Finland. They met each other, got married, bought some property in Finland that has a guest house on a lake. And they really wanted people to come visit them. And so we thought, oh, we're not doing anything exciting. <laughs> Let's buy some plane tickets. And so we bought these tickets for a month and figured, oh, well, while we're on the continent of Europe, let's visit some other places that we wanted to go to, which kind of allowed us to visit Dave's favorite dead philosopher's graves. I'm hesitant to say favorite in every case, but you know, fair enough. Some of your favorite. True. Yeah, absolutely. We, I had to prioritize. That's for sure. Yeah. We had to make big decisions about where not to go. Mm-hmm. And other places took us across the country or used up an entire day that we had in Paris, for in instance. The pouring rain. In the pouring rain. <laughs> Multiple times. Raise your hands if you've seen the little trailer for the graveside tour with uh, n- none of you have even seen that. You've seen that. I confided to you in voice message that I'm not too thrilled about graves. So. Oh, you don't even care about the graves. Yeah, I know. Wow. <laughs> he doesn't care about the graves. Wow. And actually, I've gotten I've that. i Keats's grave and I was like, yeah. It's a grave. <laughs> I've, gotten, I've gotten this feedback from a few people like. Uh, another another thing that some people have said is, uh, I care about these thinkers, yeah, but I don't care about their where they are buried. Like I don't, I don't think it's wrong to care about. Yeah, them. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it's cool that you like. It. I just I was like, meh. <laughs> That's fair. So I don't know if it was. I don't know what it was that made us really want to. Oh, that's gone. We'll have to replace the battery later. Anyway. I don't, I don't know what, what it was really that originally made me go, I have to do this. But like, first it was Bert had visited Marx's memorial at the Highgate Cemetery in London. Mm-hmm. And I definitely wanted to go there. Right. And the rest of Europe, I'm like, what is Europe? Some castles, you know, some museums. Like, I don't know. I don't really know Europe. I don't really have like a sense for what Europe is or like where I should go. Like I, there's, landmarks and tourist places that yeah we definitely still went to some of those mm-hmm. but also like as far as i wanted to make this all more real to me and also we got to make it more real to other people because Anne interviewed me at every one of the graves yeah. so yeah what are the what are the three questions the you three can- questions at each grave was why is this person important to the field of philosophy why is this thinker important to you and your own work and what text or book would you recommend someone start with if they wanted to read this person? They were usually some variation of those three questions that were asked at, I think, eight graves throughout Europe, Germany, uh, France, and London specifically. No one in Poland or Finland. <laughs> um, in, the, in, the, in the chat, uh, it said lots of reverb happening. Um, and it said maybe everybody in the chat needs to mute themselves when not talking. Well, everyone is muted now, so I hope it's all good now, everybody. If not, then I can always upload a version of this later. 
that hopefully works. <laughs> Sorry, not sure what's going on there. Um, but hope- let's put the mic up here, though. Again, yeah, put the mic up. There. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Okay. Let us know if anything changes, but I, I really hope it's all right now. Yeah. So yeah, we went to a bunch of different graves, and so the with the trailer coming out, you know, it said like what? Welcome to the Theory Underground, or, or something along the lines of like Theory Underground trailer. And anybody who watched it got a got to see me standing beside some graves, some philosophers talking about them a little bit. But uh, it might have given people the impression that all that's happening with Theory Underground over the next year is that I'm like giving people like this sort of virtual tour around Europe, doing a sort of introduction to philosophy by way of like landmarks. Um, that's one thing that's definitely happening. It will be like a sort of introduction to philosophy uh, course that is developing, but it's one of many courses that will be developing. And so maybe actually this is a good time now to, uh, to talk about the, some of those courses. So the, the I guess the, la- the last thing before we dive into it is just to say, Theory Underground, the website, is to be the infrastructure for at least one of the places that is doing underground theory. And I wanted to give Mikey the opportunity really quick to talk about what that is, what underground theory is to you, or how we came up with it, because it was kind of came out of our conversations. Okay, so first thing is, yeah, this is this name, Theory Underground, Underground Theory, either one, it did emerge from our conversations, and I remember we were talking, and I said, you know, we're really doing some underground shit, right? And I said that, didn't really think much of it, but it registered with Dave. So a few months go by. And Dave comes back. He's like, you know, you were talking about like underground, like we're doing an underground thing or whatever. It's like we're it's theory underground or underground theory. Right. And we started talking off of that. And so in some sense, we both named it. Right. And this is something like I'm not going to go on a long Lacanian thing about naming, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll save that discussion for later. But there is something important about when something gets named, right? Because prior to this, it's kind of like there's a vague sense we all have of whatever this subculture, and it is a subculture that's at least, it isn't a full-blown subculture yet. It's certainly one that's emerging. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things click together, right? Things were quilted as us Lacanians like to, put it by this signifier underground theory or theory underground. And from there, we just, you know, we started talking about it more, but then Dave went to work on thinking about what it would be to, I don't, I don't like calling it rebrand. Everybody else will maybe call it that, but um, I, I I'll just call it rename um, himself and, and the, the work, that he's doing and it, it kind of worked out right theory plebe goes to theory underground um so that that just kind of it, it works on its own but the way i at least am thinking about all this right now is that um if we want to talk about the reference to each of these terms because with dave and i we talk theory underground underground theory right 
Well, the reference are basically this. Theory Underground refers to this online institute. Um, if we want to even call it that, what I'll let Dave, you can pick a signifier for that. But for sure, it's what Dave's building right now, right? Um, Theory Underground is this online learning institute, theory institute that Dave is building. Um, underground theory, well, on the one hand, it is an emerging subculture, right? It is an activity. It's something one can do. And it, it would make sense to me for certain people. I mean, I guess you, you can say I'm an underground theorist, right? If I think that works. I think that works for a lot of what we're doing, what many of us are doing. Um, and so, yeah, as far as this distinction goes i think that's that's the the key part of it here and what dave is seeking to do and me too with however much you know i collaborate dave's going to be working with a lot of people here but at least i can speak to this dave and i have always been devoted to the teaching of theory to people who do not have robust academic backgrounds we we've always tried to make it as accessible and that you you find you'll find a lot of people saying they make it accessible but what we're really trying to do is teach it in a way that connects it to people's lives that is not just abstract concepts that it it, it has the ability to change your life like it did for both of us right and Part of that, and Dave and I have talked about this. Dave's mentioned it on certain streams before, but as theory underground grows and develops, part of what he and I want to do in some way is help people learn how to learn because we both had to learn how to learn. Um, I won't go into our background stories here, but I mean, we've talked about it before and we'll talk about it again, but we both had to teach ourselves how to learn. And because we had to, you know, be this, do this autodidact thing that a lot of academics don't have to do. Um, that's something we both are devoted to is helping people who want to learn how to learn, learn how to learn. And that's part of it. Now, of course, what we want to help them learn how to learn is philosophy and theory. And I think the reason why something like this underground theory, this subculture is emerging. I think it's partly for a very big social reason, which is we know that we're facing certain economic, uh, ecological, political problems, right? And I think there's a prevailing sense that the old answers to these types of problems aren't going to be the answers that work for us. So just simply relying on science or simply relying on religion, right? It's not that they don't, they maybe not, <laughs> I'm sure they have something to say to us, but I think just the standard forms of what people think of by science or religion, they don't think they're going to fix whatever's wrong with society. Now you have some people who, who flee to them, right? But I think a lot of people don't see a future 
in those institutions. And that's why people are gravitating more and more to philosophy and theory. And this is where I, I, I kind of have a basic Heideggerian take on this, which is to say Heidegger, Heidegger and being in time famously says that you don't really notice things. They don't become fully present to you unless they break down until they malfunction. Right. I think the world itself is malfunctioning for people, not just parts of the world, not just particular institutes, but the world itself. And if the world itself becomes malfunctioned or broken down or unready to hand, as he puts it, then it makes you contemplate it. It makes, it makes you think about like, what would it take for this to be fixed? Now, obviously nobody has just the big answers to these problems, but the fact that you see the world itself as an issue, uh, it makes you think like, well, people have been doing traditional religions for a long time and there's some, but I don't, I have a feeling like these don't provide the answer. That's where philosophy comes in, where philosophy is this area that says to you, we don't have the answers sitting on the shelf, just ready and waiting to be used, right? We have to think the answers and we have to tarry with them. We have to struggle with these questions and you, we can't simply fall back on old conceptual frameworks, worldviews, etc. If there's a way out of our current situation, it has to be a new answer. And I think that's what's driving underground theory, because when your life hangs in the balance, when your life is involved, it's not just how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's not these philosophical abstract types of thought experiments or anything. People are philosophizing because of their lives, not because of just some academic or intellectual curiosity. And I see that being one of the driving forces, if not the prevailing main driving force of what we see. Right. But I also want to say that even though what we call underground theory is a way of life, um, it's not merely a job. It's not merely a teaching position. Um, it's not a spot in academia. It truly is a way of life. And from my experience from days, we have sacrificed a lot for, for theory, for philosophy. And it's not that anybody, any people owe us anything. It's not that at all, but it is a thing that we're willing to, we've sacrificed for it. And I think that's also part of what's at stake in underground theory is where it's, it's again, it's not just a hobby. It's not just, um, um, a fun little curiosity. I mean, it's something that you'll get up out of bed and go work a job you hate just so you can do it for a couple hours after work. Right. Um, I think that's where the, the lifestyle or way of life aspect of it comes into play. But with that being said, I also, I harbor no like resentment towards professional academics. Everyone who's taught me something that I cherish has been a professional academic, right? I mean, from my mentor at community college, Doug Washer, who, I mean, I wouldn't be here 
if Doug hadn't been there cultivating my love of philosophy, right? I, uh, he let me sit in on his class. I, I, well, I took his class, but then he let me sit in on his class for like five years. Every week, I'd still go to Doug's class. And every week, I was learning something new because he would have his discussions with his students and I'd see how he taught. And I wouldn't be here without Doug Washer. I also wouldn't be doing the stuff with Zizek and Lacan if it wasn't for Todd McGowan. Straight up. Todd unlocked Lacan and Zizek for me. I'd been beating my head against the wall with these two for years. And I picked up some basics, but getting to talk to Todd and pick his brain, he just unlocked this thing for me. And so, I mean, on top, I mean, of course, there's these 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 people I, I've actually talked to and gotten to know, Doug, of course, and Todd. But, I mean, I look at these books that I'm surrounded by, everyone, uh, Hegel, Baudrillard, Zizek, I mean, you go down this whole list, right? Foucault, these are all professional academics. And so underground theory is not something that's like antagonistic towards people in academia or institutionalized education. What it is, though, is a, a space or a subculture for people who can't begin to get into that space uh and i love what bert said in the the little trailer video you guys did with him where he was talking about in a weird way even though there's all these struggles that people like dave and i and i mean all of us right like all of us face in not having professional academic status right at the same time it opens up these possibilities that professional academics don't have First off, we can write whatever we want. We can publish whatever we want. We don't have to check with anybody. We don't have, you know, there's a freedom in that. And Kierkegaard had that. Nietzsche had that. It's, you know, so there's that. And then there's just the ability to, if we want to spend three months reading one book, we can do that. So my view is that even though there's all these limitations, and especially economic hardships. But, you know, here's the thing. You can be a professional academic and still have economic hardships. So it's almost like none of us are exempt from that. Um, nonetheless, it is. It, it Underground theory opens up the potential for a type of philosophical thought that. I don't think's ever happened. And, you know, of course, America's had some famous philosophers. Um I think my personal favorite, and I think the greatest American philosopher that ever lived is Charles Sanders Peirce. That's just my take. But you have William James and Dewey. You have that pragmatist tradition. You have Thoreau and Emerson. You have that. But I, in a, in a certain sense, I don't feel like philosophies come to America yet in a, in, in, a, in a certain way. And I think with all of us, America is starting to philosophize in a way that it hasn't before. Um, and I mean that like on a more, of course you can say like the founding fathers were philosophical minds. You can make that argument, but I'm talking about in this broader sense of the public, um, becoming more and more philo philosophical. I, I, despite, you know, the economic problems we're facing and political problems in my lifetime, I've never seen Americans be more philosophical than they are now. And 
I think that's a huge opportunity. I don't know for what, but I'm, it's something I'm somewhat optimistic about. And so I just want to say, wrap this up real quick, but I just want to say that, look, there, this, this subculture has been emerging for a while. You can say, you can trace it back to, you know, bread tube, which is still kind of a thing, but I think we also think it's not what it was at the same time, but bread tube or left tube is part of it. But the blogosphere from especially like the 2008, 2007, somewhere around there where philosophy blogs were really popular is part of it. But I think all of that has built up to where we're at right now with uh, this really strong online philosophical subculture. And I think the more it grows, the more it actually becomes instantiated in real cities. There's going to be more groups that form. You already see what's going on in Boise that, that Dave's doing. So I think it's something that we're, we're witnessing the, the very beginning of. Um, let's see. Any other quick points? Um, no, we're going to come back. To, we'll come back to you in a minute. So I'll let you. Hold on, hold on. Last thing, and then I'm done. Okay. The only other thing is, and this is just so. Of course, these terms people are going to use. Um, theory, theory underground is Dave's Institute. Underground theory is an emerging subculture. But I just want to say, on a personal note, these are also names for us. Like it, it they're they're names that Dave and I kind of not kind of we have given to each other. Um, and they symbolize the, the pack that we've had as brothers in philosophy who were at one point really kind of doing this on our own. And so Dave is theory underground. I am underground theory. And that flies in the face of capitalist logic. You could see a marketing team going, you, you two can't call yourself. No, you can't invert it. You can't do that. That's bad branding. So with that being said, I'm not renaming dangerous. Maybe blog is going to stay dangerous. Maybe blog. Uh, Dave's the, the one who's actually using one of the names, but just on a personal thing, like their names that we've given to each other and okay, I'm done. That's it. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. That was beautiful. I, I, I could clip and ship just, just that piece of everything you did. It's a standalone thing. So everybody take your hats off and put it together for, for Mikey. Really appreciate that. And you know, for me, it has a big thing to do with not going even through alternative media not becoming an influencer, doing it for my own sake, not because I believe that a predetermined demographic needs to hear or see something represented. Predetermined demographics are the are derivative of the algorithmic siloing that occurs online. Online communities are cool. Some of the best people I know came through the internet. Some of the worst people I know. Internet, most of them, the worst ones. But, you know, the real world, though, is also where I've met some of the folks here. And uh, some of the folks here who I have met online, I then met in the real world. And this whole, you know, online is not the not real world. It's still the real world, but it's obviously different. And we're all trying to come to some better relationship with it. And so when I say this is a hybrid event, in the future, I'll actually have a camera on this side of the room and a camera on this side of the room, and then I'll sit there. And so I'll have myself in one in one camera and then everyone else is in the other two cameras and then the online people are, are in the zoom thing and then everyone can see everyone 
It's going to, it's eventually going to occur. But then the main thing is I'm going to spend the next few months here in Mexico developing these courses. Um, I'm going to be doing the one with Brian and Ann, the one with Elton, and uh, also the one with Mikey. And that's just the first three, right? And also, it's not just with Mikey. We're le- Mikey's leading it. I'm kind of uh, emceeing it, interviewing him. And um, Andrew and Nick are excited for the one that Mikey's leading. Um, uh, several people are excited about the ones that we're doing together. And so, but those conversations, at, more and more of those will occur, hopefully. If all goes according to plan, more, of the, more and more of those will occur. And as they do, I won't just be in Mexico anymore. I'll be like, oh, I'm going to be in Chicago next week. There will be actually posters put up three weeks ahead of time to the event. There will be online marketing targeting specific people in Chicago ahead of the event. Um, And then when we actually come to town, it's not going to be just one thing. Because part of the inspiration I take from the underground music scene was when bands like Mission from Burma and Black Flag, they were trying to defy market logic by saying, no, we're going to make music that's not palpable. I mean, I don't, I can't even listen to it. It's uh, when, when I, when I say I owe my roots to them, it's like, yeah, cause I'm into post hardcore. I'm not into hardcore. It's like that stuff's indecipherable to me. I mean, but also people would say the same thing about my music because this is all part of how the reproduction of a capitalist society in consumer society requires that we all have very niche identity kind of expressions. Right. And so music becomes a vehicle for that. And so punk didn't realize how much it was actually playing into the reproduction of capitalism, they were very, oh, we're against things. Okay. And we're against selling out or going mainstream. Most of them sold out. Some of them, it ruined their music. Other ones, it didn't ruin their music because siding with a major label doesn't necessarily ruin everything, but it can. And if that's your only thing is that you want to be a rock star and you want to be famous, well, then your music fucking sucks. Okay. Whatever. We don't care. But the thing that I liked though, in that scene was that these bands from the West coast and the East coast would tour and they'd go through towns, not just cities. They'd go through towns and they'd spend a week or two where they go, you know, and sometimes we'll stay a place for a couple months, a few months, and we'll get to know people and we'll do like a philosophy boot camp or, you know, dairy dog boot camp or whatever the fuck I'm working on at the time, a boot camp for it. But then the people who are engaged online or a part of the forum or part of the Zoom calls or whatever are going to be able to continue. Or after I leave Chicago in this example that I've been using randomly, because there's no reason in the world to go to Chicago, really. None. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I've got a lot of friends I look forward to visiting in Chicago. But anyway, uh, after we leave, though, after we leave Chicago, if you're like, damn, that was the coolest thing that I've done in a few years, or I'm really interested in, you know, continuing the course that I got a taste of or whatever, and it's still going on, well, then you can join. You can continue to join after we leave the city. So the this is not just the launch of like the social media side of things. It's also the launch in terms of like announcing that we're coming to your city and that if you want us to come to your city, I'm going to be putting forms up on the website where you can be an ambassador, a host, or you can recommend, you know, certain venues or whatever, give us feedback as far as getting plugged in with certain bookstores that maybe be good to give a talk at getting plugged in with a library that it might be good to give a talk at, et cetera, et cetera. And as we develop all of this and, and I, there will probably be other fun stuff that we do as well, because we always do some crazy fun events that aren't just philosophy, that aren't just theory. It might also be like performance art or some kind of improv or something like that. So, but um, I want to talk about the three trains that are departing in January and February. Um, and so the first one 
let's just talk a little bit about uh, how the idea of the professional managerial class consciousness, I'm calling the class, as long as you're cool with that, but I was thinking professional. You yeah. Switch? yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll you do like a new, later, yeah. Mason. Right. And all of this is available later after the fact, if you want to watch it later, too. If anybody's got to go, no worries. But we will be wrapped up, though, uh, in about 40 minutes. And then see you later, Patricia. Hey, welcome to the show, Elton. <laughs> yeah. You've been doing a good job looking pretty. Thank you. So, um, okay. So, I'll just say a couple of things and then hand it over to you. But the professional managerial class became a term that started getting floated, I think, a lot online by people who were a part of the post left or who were uh, critical of the left, but might have still been socialists or anarchists or whatever. But there's a variety of tendencies that began to think about this term that had been around for a long time because it's an old thesis that dates back to the mid 20th century. But as a thesis, it's basically trying to answer the same kind of a question that the concept of the labor aristocracy is trying to answer, uh, which is, you know, so uh, something's going wrong with our class analysis. There seems to be a lot of people in the working class who would prefer not to organize, you know, in unions who might actually be pretty reactionary, but also people who are just like super depoliticized. Um, and so the various ways of theorizing that, but one of them obviously was that we had a huge, uh, a growing middle class in consumer capitalism um, and that uh, there was a rise in people with salaried positions and university educations. And so the new left uh, in the 60s had a self-consciousness to some degree that it was, um, you know, students of a certain degree of privilege, you know, who were going to be probably entering these institutions if they didn't say no to them. Um, and eventually, they, most of them said yes to them, right? Well, what does that do to a traditional class analysis? And why should we care? If you're a Marxist, you should care, but also you should care even if you are just a teacher, or a lawyer, or if you work at a nonprofit, everyone should care. And not just people who are organizing politically should care, but also anybody who's in a position of authority or responsibility who has come to any kind of degree of working class consciousness or being aware of you know, what it is to be a part of the working class um, needs, to be, needs to develop a self-consciousness of what the professional managerial section of the working class does in the reproduction of capitalism, no matter how anti-capitalist its rhetoric might be, what is its role in the reproduction of capital and its role in uh, mainstreaming neoliberalism? That's basically the questions I have. And we want to talk about some books. How have you gotten into all this? What do you think about <laughs> Why are you excited about this thing that we're kicking off in January? So the... PMC, the professional managerial class, or I actually don't prefer to call it a class, but I call it a class anyways. So um, I'm interested because, you know, like similar, I got into philosophy because I believe, you know, like it's important to understand the world, why it functions the way it does. And then of course, so that, you know, I can change the world. And I don't, I think, you know, finding the concept of the PMC was like, you know, a missing puzzle piece that it was 
something that helped me make sense of so many um, nuances, so many aspects of the political world that we live in, as well as even understanding philosophy and understanding kind of knowledge in, in general, um, which maybe in just a minute I'll make some sense out of. I wrote, I wrote a few notes here. Um, some of them are, you know, a little bit redundant with what Dave was saying, but essentially just kind of like, you know, what is the PMC? Why is, why is that important? Um, you know, kind of like what Dave was saying, like the, the crux of it, at least, you know, in the mid 1970s, when um, we had uh, Barbara Ehrenreich and her ex-husband specifically write an essay um, trying to make some sense, you know, essentially like create a, a new approach to class analysis um, because essentially Marxism had, you know, attempted to, you know, understand Western society as a class conflict between the workers and the capitalists. But Marx didn't predict the middle class or <laughs> neoliberalism. Instead, he was expecting that, you know, the workers would have taken over. Um, not only did that not happen, especially like after, you know, the 30s when uh, the labor movement, especially like in America, really had a lot of power. Um, instead, um, the middle class, you know, like essentially reinforced the stability of capitalism. So um, Barbara Ehrenreich and her, and her ex-husband um, essentially just tried to assess, well, what is going on? A lot of Marxists at that time and, you know, from, from early on, um, just called the middle class, like the petty bourgeoisie. Um, Which is a problem. Yeah. It, it, and just kind of like petty bourgeoisie means, you know, that they're small capitalists. And, um, you know, Marx used the term middle class, but he didn't use it consistently and it didn't really fit well into Marxism. So, um, you know, essentially Barbara Ehrenreich, and I'll just use her um, as shorthand just because I don't know much about her husband, nor do many of us, but she's, she's going to be, <laughs> she is shorthand for the two of them. She's yeah. the, she's the main for us. She became like the New York times bestseller and, mm -hmm. and required reading in a lot of um, college courses, uh, introductory college courses. Yeah. So that being said, um, you know, trying to answer, well, what happened? Why is there such a big middle class? Um, and um, also trying to assess, like, what happened to the left? If you look at the left in, you know, the 19th century and early 20th century, the left was fundamentally tied to the working class. And, then and the working class had its own everything, institutions. Yeah. It was building its, there were workers who saw themselves as working class developing its own, their own institutions and organizations for a hundred years before Marx put pen to paper. And so 
uh, you know, he was presupposing something that was strong and apparent. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Good point. Um, and even in in German, like you know, Arbeit is um, work, and uh, it's it's funny when you look at all of the institutions that had like Arbeiter in in the name, for example. Um, but of course, when you look at well, you know, like I grew up into the left that goes back to the '60s, basically, and it's the student movement. So basically a left that's like grounded in academia and it's, it's an academia that, you know, to reference like Althusser um, is fundamentally an institution of capitalism, which, you know, I think deserves much further analysis. There's a lot more to be said there, but the idea is that, you know, as Barbara Ehrenreich was identifying is that the middle class and, and particularly the part of the middle class that she's interested in is made up of professionals <laughs> who've gotten a college education and probably uh, managers that have gotten an education in the university as well. And so that um, tie to the academy as kind of the cornerstone of what the PMC and what the left tied to that PMC is about um, radically transforms even like how we think about politics, how we think about philosophy. Um, obviously, you know, some of the live debates today are, uh, as, especially as socialism and DSA has, has grown, um, is you know class analysis versus thinking through politics in terms of identity politics that kind of stuff. So um, wrapping up, you know, I see that um, you know the concept of the PMC, understanding that, and you know, essentially what happened in the 20th century gives us a much better framework in order to understand like what's going on today. Um, especially thinking about, you know, I guess just a class-based politics. Um, yeah, I think I'll wrap it up there. And the only thing I'll say as a sort of bridge between this and the next one is that um, that education system is one that has a lot of good things, but it also has a lot of bad things. When all of activism is coming out of it and it's a part of people building their CVs and it's a part of people building their careers, it means that whenever a movement, there's movement energy getting whipped up, usually the people who come to the fore in that movement, the assumptions, the frameworks and the concepts that they are utilizing are ones that were developed within PMC spaces by PMC people for PMC ends which always serve capital, but also insofar as it might pose a bit of a problem for capital, um, you, you know, like rhetorically on the left, maybe perhaps. Um, the whole thing can be revolting to someone who's not from that, to someone who works in a warehouse, to someone who works in a construction site, to somebody who um, does come from a more petty bourgeois background. Now, the PMC left and right both 
use petty bourgeois rhetoric sometimes. And it kind of depends on what your influencer is, how much of their rhetoric is PMC and how much of it is bourgeois, right? But uh, generally speaking, the PMC discourse is the one that is super sensitive and cares about representation and recognition and you not saying certain things and you say, and then you also saying certain things. Like it cares a lot about discourse and controlling discourse and, and identity and, and platforms where identities can appear representing others or whatever. Um, whereas the bourgeois ones like pour yourself up by your bootstraps. The only thing that's going to help you is yourself. Right. So obviously it's the Republican approach usually. And, and uh, thank you for um, summarizing some of the pieces that I miss. And I think it's even worth, worth mentioning that like uh, Aaron Reich is arguing that the PMC essentially exploded as a, you know, in a population wise as a class in part because the class, the capitalist class recognized, you know, that con conflictive relationship it had with the working class was problematic and sometimes not the most productive and that the PMC actually um, could, you know, soften some of that conflict and, and create a more conciliatory relationship. So then the PMC saw itself, especially in the early 20th century, but I think we even see it more today as trying to solve the problems of, you know, the, the poor and, you know, those who are suffering. And yet it, of course, is playing a role where it's also help, helping capital. So essentially, you know, I think that's what's interesting for me is like, there's some good there. I want to understand, you know, kind of like how much can be salvaged from the PMC. Yeah. Um, you know, what, you know, having kind of some self-consciousness there just because. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not everybody in order to, you know, have a good life should have to go to college and people should have access to concepts without going to college. This kind of education we're talking about should just be accessible to people regardless of what they do. And in the much longer run, liberation would mean more time and energy for working people. And so with people who seem to have some leisure time or at least opportunities for prestige and a lot of ways of organizing their own activities um, aren't going to prioritize that unless they come into self-consciousness of their actual role in the reproduction of a class society. Now, thank you for, for that. And we're really stoked. And there'll be an email from the Substack coming soon. Stay tuned for stuff on the website. You'll all be able to sign up for this within the next couple of days. Um, and I'll be pushing it everywhere on Instagram, on YouTube. I'll, I'll actually put a little trailer out for each of the actual events on the YouTube. And then there'll be the in the description where you can sign up. But now we're going to talk about the, uh, the idea of the university. So like, can we do like a Brian, yeah, you get to sit next to me this time? Every, yeah. Everyone's yes, Brian. you get the special spot. There we go. Brian gets the special spot. All right, everybody. So and, and just really quick note on itinerary. So we said this would be over at eight o'clock, uh, our time, which is right now at 723. So we've got a good 17, 20 minutes to talk about this, and then we'll wrap up talking about the Zizek one that'll be in February. But all right, so idea of the university. Um, let's talk about why we care about this so much. 
Why we want to talk about this? I want to hear from you because you guys just got back and I haven't got it. We had my son's first birthday party on Sunday, but I was so busy. I didn't get to catch up with these guys. And I've talked to Dave through voice message, but I haven't talked to you at all. So I know what you're excited. Okay. Well, coming out of the university a bit more recently and being incredibly jaded by my experience, not only as a student, as a researcher, but then as an instructor of first year students, I already have had this research interest into understanding the university and why it matters and how it has been corrupted to make it so that it no longer is an end in itself. It is a means to an end. And so just in reading the introduction of this, I'm really excited (laughs) to kind of explore this idea a bit deeper and a bit more philosophically. Um, And that's really where this interest stems from is just because I value like, you know, Gaspers in the, in the introduction, he says, the goal of the university should be to understand truth, to, to get to truth. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. I really tried to come into my own class discussion group that I was teaching at, at Boise State with that attitude of like, oh, yes, we're going to all cultivate our minds and we're all going to try so hard. And it's just not happening right now. And so I really want to kind of challenge that and understand, you know, what's going on, what, what the university should look like. And I've been just been thinking about it in terms of like how to engage disillusioned students in with ideas like this, like the university right now requires every incoming student to take a class called university foundations. And they make them read a book about the sizes of this book called becoming a learner. It's like, imagine if students were having to read this instead. And so I'm also thinking about this reading group in terms of how would I teach this to potentially like American college students. And so that's that. I think that's what I like bring to this conversation is just some firsthand experience and like a deep respect for what the university could be. Yeah, I think uh, we're in the same or similar position. Yeah. So I finished a master's degree uh, at our local university in um, in the spring of this year. Um, and while I think there were certain aspects of it that were essential for me uh, as a thinker kind of going forward and being put in that pressure chamber is what I went for, mm-hmm. right? Um, God, I was so irritated most of the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I did a master's in education because I'm an educator and I, I wanted to do a deep dive and, and like really understand what it is I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, those big foundational questions. Um, and it felt like so many of my classmates were there because they were getting a raise when they finished. Right. Um, yeah. And it feels like that's the case with a lot of undergrads too. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you know, that was the line that was given to me as a, as a child. It's like you go to college you and you get a good job when you're done. And, and that's what college is for. And um, I was, all, I've always resented that idea and, mm-hmm. and sort of a thought I had over the summer that started to come was like, there are those of us who are purists and we obsess over this and we love it and we're devoted to it. Like Mikey was talking about and in the big general universal sense, we're the founders of institutions like universities or on the religious side of the church itself. And then it was usurped by institutionalists, right? By bureaucrats. And no wonder we're fucking pissed. 
you know, because like the thing that we love and the reason we go there is so frequently unavailable mm-hmm. um, or available in like bursts and you get like glimpses of the cool thing. Yeah. But being in a classroom where you're handed a, a text of philosophy of education and the professor's constantly apologizing for how hard it is, you know, it's like, damn, dude, this one's not even hard. (laughs) Yeah, Um, And so my thesis was on these sort of institutional questions. And I kind of want to call an audible um, because we've still been figuring out exactly how this course works. And we were talking this morning and last night, kind of um, the first meeting be a pre-read and I kind of actually definitely want to do that um, because uh, I think Agamben can speak to some of this frustration and so can Ivan Illich. And I think doing a quick lecture on those two sort of uh, Illich is very anti-institutional and he wants to just, I mean, you wrote the book de-schooling society and I'd love to mm-hmm. talk about how that can inform this. Cause that was a huge part of my thesis. And then Agamben, I really like, he, he did the study of St. Francis and in, in his kind of response to the institutional like ossification of the church that wasn't ans- like anti-church. And I think that's why I, I'm really excited about Jasper's here is because this is like the strongest defense for the institution. It is because I really don't want to shit on. I don't want to get rid of it. No, I don't. Yeah. Um, but I also don't want it to be this place where 40,000 students in every major American city go to get a job mm. every year, man, that just sounds like, a lot of wasted resources, basically, um, and a lot of missed opportunity. And so just in the first chapters, we really get, I think, Jaspers is sort of, you can see that he's trying to bring back some of the foundational um, building blocks that made the university unique compared to other institutions (laughs) and trying to find a way to support the institution without having to get, like, supported doing its originary job without having to get rid of it you know and if we can't do that fuck it see and if we and that's the thing is that i would say but i would love to we're we're, at the end of the day you know we're not necessarily responsible i mean i'm not going to feel the responsibility of reforming the entire american academic institute i think that's stupid you know and it would be delusions of grandeur we're not trying to reinvent the wheel so much as like okay no there is a literal idea of the university that has been around for a couple of thousand years. There's a lot of really good things about it. Um, World War II and capitalism, uh, totalitarianism and business interests uh, on, the, on both sides have fractured that idea, have undermined its ability to be achieved. It's an idea, like a platonic idea. It's not exactly something that we can just actually ever materialize, but it's like, yeah, but we can actually prioritize this idea in our lives and try to live it. Um, people are like, why don't you teach at a university? Okay, I don't think Harvard's like in a hurry to hire me right now. And a state university <laughs> is going to have me teach the same thing over and over again until I hate myself and I want to kill myself. Like there's not, it's not doable um, as a way of life for people who don't want to, you know, be on this tenure track for like this huge amount of our time and. Fifteen years before you can actually right. get part of the reason I teach high school is because it's teaching. less precarious. It's less, yeah, less precarious. I've got school. a job. I know what my schedule is, and I'm going to have my job so long as I want it. And it's funny, like uh, you know, Frank's right out of shot here, but that's Frank. He came in late. There he is. <laughs> Frank, Frank was here, everyone. But Frank, Frank, and Elton both are examples of people who 
um, almost did the academic thing. Like both of them were, you know, in the, in the institution, um, in their own ways, thinking about being philosophy professors. I was thinking about being a philosophy professor. Um, and it's like, okay, but is there a way to just do what I want and do it in a way that is sometimes really hard mode, really in depth, but also other times beginner friendly, like, uh, like the meme I just posted on Instagram about Aristotle. I mean, it was a picture of a rock star basically with a microphone and it said like, it said how Aristotle felt after going hard mode with the boys all morning, doing a public lecture to the, to the normies that afternoon. He did that every day of the, of the academic cycle. Like he would, he would do like a several hour, like in the, you know, close reading exegesis, like everyone's really getting into the, the concepts and then he would go and he would do like a, an intro kind of thing for the people who are just coming to the public lectures. And, you know, like uh, Hegel and, and Lacan are a couple of other examples of like these, these people who really brought like the, like the, they were doing the private sessions and the tutoring stuff, but they were also doing like these public lectures where people were invited to come. And I love that. And I think that you've got to teach to learn. Some of us do. I definitely, uh-huh. I definitely need to teach exactly. to learn. And so I need like the, uh, I need the place for doing it in a way that's not confined to um, accreditation, really um, a place where the, the standard isn't, well, what did you learn there? You know? Yeah. We'll have some learning outcomes and goals or whatever, but we're not so worried about measuring it. It's like, no, you're responsible to yourself. Your response, you, you have to live with the work that you put into it and what you put into it is what you'll get back. Um, one of the things the Astros will talk about in this is what, what the ideal student and the person who lives and breathes the stuff, what they need, as opposed to what the business interests or the, politic, the, the political parties that might take over a university and then say it all has to be a certain way, what they might expect. And they all measure for bureaucrats. They all measure for disciplined minds. And so, um, what, you know, the, he talks about how you shouldn't have a midterm exam that's like testing your knowledge. You should have a final and that's pretty much it. You have some guidance, you have some things along the way, but, it, but you're not being graded on the stuff along the way. You get to build up to the final thing. And so that's one of the things that we'll be doing in all of these courses, all of these trains that you can all hop aboard. The one thing that you'll all be able to do um, if you pay for it is I will read it over. Well, you know, and the, the actual people who lead the thing will actually look at the things that you say and reflect on it. You'll get some feedback. Um, and, and the stuff on the forum will live beyond the actual uh, live event. And then people who come in later and do the event later after the fact, they will be able to get in there and join the conversation after the fact. So it doesn't just go away or become a comment section on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was wondering what was in your eye because I knew I knew I knew he had a joke. I know I knew he had a joke. Uh, Okay, anything else we want to say about this course before we before we uh, switch gears here? I think we could talk forever, so we should either talk or shut up. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll do more later. Shut up, Um, Mikey uh, and I have had uh, we did four parts on. Lacan four parts on Zizek with a big grand finale that tied the two, the the two seasons together through the phallus, the the concept of the phallus 
which was fun and funny, um, as phalluses are most of the time. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, we're going to do... Lacanians argue that the phallus is the comedic object par excellence. So, that, yep, you got it. <laughs> I like that as you, you said, Lacan, Kenneth in the background here laid down on the couch. Like he's ready. <laughs> he's, he's ready. He's ready for analysis now. Um, but yeah, Mikey, uh, you want to talk a little bit about what we're excited about doing here, kicking off in February. Right. So what we're going to do is this is going to be the first time I actually teach a course um, focused on a specific text. And part of it is yeah, it's time for this to happen. I've wanted to teach a, uh, a great work of philosophy for a long time. Um, and we've laid the foundation for it. So of course we, we knew we've known for a long time that the first book I'm going to teach is a Zizek book, but the question's always been, well, which one, right? Zizek's written so many great books. Um, but it turned out that the one that made the most sense is before they know not what they do. And the reason it makes sense is because, I mean, as, as I mean, we're still in this course, um, the Zizek and so on podcast. Hey, Michael, uh, Michael, one of the, uh, uh, no. yep. One of the guys at, uh, Zizek and so on podcast, which we all love. Uh, he's here, uh, watching, um, Zizek and so on podcast organized, a course taught by Matthew Flissfader, who is a leading Zizekian philosopher to teach for they know not what they do. And I didn't think I would be able to take the course, but it turned out that with my work schedule, I was actually able to do it. And it's been one of the best courses I've taken um, because, well, for one, it, it introduced me to this in incredible book by Zizek. And I'm ashamed to even publicly admit that I hadn't really read it before. I'd read, read little sections of it, but I've read 20 of his books, right? Uh, some of which I focus on more than others based on how I'm using them in my own work, in my own books I'm writing. But from taking this course with Zizek and so on and Matthew Flissfader, it became very apparent to me that for they know not what they do, is a very special book in Zizek's Ouvoir. And the reason is because except for maybe his later work, which will probably be his, his masterpiece called Less Than Nothing, For They Know Not What They Do is his most concentrated theoretical work where Zizek's known for pop culture and talking about movies and politics but for they know not what they do, it's, it's where he really, really, really focuses on theory, especially Hegelian theory. Um, and of course, all the time he's tying it to Lacan. But I'm just blown away with how exceptional this book is. And part of the reason to teach it is because it's fresh. I mean, we're still we still got this course going. Uh, we have three more sessions with uh, Zizek and so on and uh, Matthew Flissfader. Um, and so going forward, I was, Dave was like, you got to pick one. What, what are we going to do? Is it sublime object, like a fantasies tearing with the negative? And I'm like, you know what? No, I want, it's because this is the one I want to keep learning from the most right now. And not only am I 
it's not, yes, I'm teaching it, but it's also like, I want to absorb it even more. It's almost like I want to keep this course going that we're taking right now. Cause I'm enjoying it so much. Um, uh, uh, so yeah, th that's what we're planning on doing. We're going to, we're going to go through the book chapter by chapter. And here's the thing, right? So, right. Matthew's teaching it now. I'm going to take my shot at it. And this is part of building a working class. What do you want to call it? body of knowledge, body of theory, where look like you think about the great Heidegger scholars, Dave, that you and I have read when we, you know, when we were learning Heidegger, you have Hubert Dreyfus, you have Mark Rathall, you have Ian Thompson, uh, Richard Coppa Bianco, right? Like you have these great Heidegger scholars and you want to learn Heidegger from all of them. You want to hear what everybody has to say. And so I, I, I want as many courses on Sublime Object or Lacan Seminar 11 or Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus as I can get, right? And this is obviously just the first of many courses that we're going to be doing, but that's the way I view it is like, I just want to make my contribution um, to this, this general body of philosophical knowledge or resources. And I, I, I hope this continues where you get 20 different people teaching these books, because here's the thing, right? Like I'll go back to Lacan for a second. Okay. So if you had Joan Kopchak and Alenka Zupancic and Todd McGowan and Matthew Flissfader, and you give them Lacan seminar 11, right? Dwayne Roussel, right? Give these, give these five, six Lacanians seminar 11 and tell them, Hey, teach it. Even though they're teaching the same book, you are going to get insights and jewels from each of them that you're not going to get from the other ones. Right. And so if I had it my way, I'd take a course on seminar 11 from all of them. And that's, what I want to do with what I'm doing is just, I want to make my contributions to this. Um, I, it's always been a dream of mine to teach an, a, a great text and it's time. And I, it, it, the one is kind of, uh, of Zizek's it's an obvious choice for us. So starting in February, we're going to do this. Yeah. And so, I mean, man, I, I was never convinced that, there was like a theory really that Zizek had worked out, you know, like I, cause the things that I had read from him, it was, it always kind of felt like maybe he's got one working in the background and he kind of comes back to it sometimes, but he never just makes, he never just draws the whole thing out in the public and lays it all out for you. I mean, but this is about as close as you'll come to it. And for they know not what they do, it is nice. So like I always say with G people, does Zizek really have a theory of his own? And for me, I think Zizek is one of the greatest philosophers in the entire philosophical tradition. I know that's a bold statement, but I think he's up there with the very best. And here's the trick, right? Here's the problem with it. It's not immediately obvious because everybody knows him. He's funny. He's great to watch. Um, everybody knows the interviews, but people go, well, he just, he, he says some stuff about Hegel and he says some stuff about Lacan. And I think this is a problem of, that Slavoj has is, I mean, he, he, he's already said, like, if you call me the, the Elvis of cultural theory, right? Like 
you know, they're making me into a kind of philosophical clown. And in doing that, they've, they have in a sense succeeded in neutralizing him. People think he's just, he's just fun or, you know, he's, he's entertaining, but here's the thing for me. As I've studied him, I've realized that when he's talking about Hegel, he's more talking about his reading of Hegel. Now, people can go, well, are you just saying he's made up a reading and it doesn't actually correspond to Hegel? No. But what Zizek's lasting contribution to philosophy is going to be, over and above the stuff on ideology, which is part of it, and over and above his popularization of Lacan, right? It's going to be his reading of Hegel and how he's theorized Hegelian metaphysics. And this is, his reading of Hegel is his great contribution to philosophy. And it's easy to just go, you know, he's just talking about Hegel. No, he's unlocking Hegel in a way that nobody prior to him did. There, when it comes to Hegel studies, or I would even say philosophy in general, there's pre-Slavoj reading Hegel and after Slavoj reading Hegel. And People can dismiss them right now. They can say, well, how are you going to put them up there with Heidegger or Kant and Hegel? Because nobody was tapped into Hegel the way Slavoj was until Slavoj. And that contribution, it takes such a, I, I still don't know when I read him how he figured it out. And part of it is Lacan. Lacan gave him certain tools, but it's just his reading of Hegel changes everything. And it's to the point, I have a whole shelf of Hegel books back there. And the ones written prior to Slavoj are kind of not worth the time because I feel like part of it is this. I think Hegel's the most misunderstood, misrepresented philosopher in history. Everybody thinks they have an idea of what he was doing. And when they try to tell you, you find out that it, if you know Slavoj at all, you go, this is dog shit, right? And I don't care if we're going back to the British idealists or um, even, even people who I love, like Kierkegaard or Schopenhauer, right? Look, as much as I love the, those thinkers, they don't want to sit and have a conversation with Slavoj about Hegel because he'll tear them up. I, I, anybody, anybody you name, the Deleuze and his, his absolute hatred of Hegel – Nietzsche's hatred of Hegel, Kierkegaard's critique of him, uh, Levinas and Derrida's and Vicky and Saya, all of them. They don't want to sit and have that conversation with Slavoj because he will show them they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to Hegel, right? That's not taking away from their brilliance as philosophers, but on the Hegel thing, they don't have it. And so that's what I love about For They Know Not What They Do is. It's Hegel. It, I, I think this is fair. I think it's safe to say that what Slavoj is doing with uh, Hegel is he is providing a certain ontology for Lacanian psychoanalysis and the theory of the subject, and he's he's mixing them. He he thinks one supplements or aids the other in philosophical development. So, um, but early on in his career, he really tended to focus on Lacan. There's some Hegel in there, but this is the one book early on where he really is focused on Hegel. And I think if somebody goes to this book, works through the ideas, 
really, really internalizes them. They can go to any other one of his books, older or newer, and really know what's going on in the background, right? So that's why I'm excited to, to discuss it. And then uh, I, it's time for me to basically close this thing out. I, I There might be room for a question at the end here, but I really want everyone to also give me the real birthday present, which is to go to the website and ask a question in the FAQ forum, which is it's public, it's open. As long as you've registered with the website, you'll be able to access it. Some of these conversations, you'll have to actually pay for the tickets to get involved with the actual course, to be a part of the cohort, undergoing the reading of whatever the text is. And then that will unlock access to a specific forum for you. But the frequently asked questions um, forum is going to be one that you can just publicly access. And so I'm going to actually pull that up here. Everyone should be able to see it on the screen. There's one on critical media theory, but you'd have to under, you have to be a part of one of the, one of the cohorts reading some of the texts to be able to get access to that one. Same with philosophy of love and friendship theory for the 21st century. Um, this professional managerial class consciousness one, obviously you all know about that one now. Um, and then right here, you'll see the ongoing time energy seminar no announcement yet on when that's kicking off, but that's one of the things I'm most excited about because that's just going to be me doing a seminar once a month or every other couple of weeks where I just talk about time energy, working through different people that have contributed to the theory in, in my reading of them. And this one right here is for all of the conversations that me and Mikey have had, Theory Underground plus Underground Theory, aka Dave and Mikey Talk Theory. You click on that, you'll see inside that there is, uh, this is one of those ones that you'll have to finish something to gain access. Uh, right now it says there's no discussions found here, but if you go down there, sub forums for critique of political economy, Lacan and psychoanalysis, uh, Zizek's theory of ideology and the young Zizekians, because we'll be doing stuff with uh, Kvoy as well. Nick's still here. Andrew, it looks like he had to leave. It's very late there. He has to wake up very early usually because he goes on watch and stuff like that. But the, uh, I'm really excited for all of that stuff, but right here, I want to show you public slash open forums, FAQ slash meme stash. So that, that's public. If you want to deposit memes or look at our memes, that's all going to be here. There's a FAQs right there on the left, meme stash on the right. It's a very clever cover photo. There's a guy talking to an audience uh, for the FAQ one. It's got question marks all over their heads and it says answers here in, in place of the guy's head. But for the meme stash one, it's got a bunch of memes over his head. Okay. And so, because, you know, that's part of, part of a, an, 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 every underground, you know, has its own art, has its own memes, everything. Every subculture has this stuff. And so, you know, we're doing it to some degree. Um, it, we, especially Nick and Andrew, but also me. Uh, we've been on Instagram. We've been turning up the meme gang uh, thing so much. I was saying in a lot of my live streams at the beginning of the year that I wanted to get a meme gang together so that we could mm -hmm. meme about the courses and stuff as we go. And it's like Nick and Andrew are like godsends or like, you know, an answer to the prayer. I put it out to the world. It's like that part in Anchorman when Ron Burgundy has the, the horn through the shell and he goes, he's like, news team, assemble. <laughs> but it's the meme gang anyway. Uh, so to wrap it all up though, I just want to say a thing for Mikey's on Mikey's behalf. Uh, he's very humble. He's very relativistic. He's basically saying he wants everyone to do these things. 
but I don't think anyone's as qualified as he is. And I put that over any of these other people's names he listed, including a God like Hubert Dreyfus or David Harvey. Like these guys are amazing. You know, no, 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 Let me, let me explain it. These guys are amazing for their ability to reread and reread and reread and be up to date on all the literature and then teach it. But they are teaching to an academic audience and Mikey's had his barstool standard for the last like 17 years. And so like the Mikey standard, you know, he's never left behind his ears, the ears that were like, I don't understand what you're talking about. So he keeps those ears in mind and he, and he talks as though he does and nobody else comes close. Nobody else on the internet comes close. Nobody else in any academic thing that I've ever you know, been able to see comes close. And I would say, you know, you might have someone who's really good at writing about this stuff for a general audience uh, and then also for an academic audience and then isn't the best teacher, but they're a cool person and you'd want to hang out with them. And they might be able to really help you if you were to do office hours with them or have a personal conversation with them on the phone, whatever. Look, nobody in the world is as qualified or as, no, I'm fucking serious as Mikey is. And so this whole like hashtag free Mikey thing is very real, right? Obviously this theory underground thing for me is like, I need, I need to do this. I feel like I need to do this. And so I'm going to put everything I have into it. Um, and I, I, I would like to be able to do it full time and I'm going to be trying to, but part of the, the vision is to free Mikey because he's going to help people like us more than anyone else is able to do. And so if you don't believe me, then you haven't been through the Lacan and Zizek series as yet. Probably you haven't repeated them. I'm going to cut, I'm going to cut those up into the essential pieces and put those into course form and then actually incorporate that. And so you, you're able to join the forums for those series. If you've done the basic courses and then this conversation we're doing with for they know not what they do will become a part of that as well. And so it's actually going to be a course that you can put in the shopping cart, pay for undergo, but then you'll get access to the forum and this will hopefully be a lot more than something you can get in a discussion group or in a class because it's going to hopefully live. That's the vision and that's the goal, whether it is actually achieved or not, who knows, but it's worth a try. And these three things that we're talking about, the idea of the university, the idea of the PMC, and for they know not what they do as a continuation of the Lokan and Gigi series is, are three of about 50 that I've already built out. Nick's seen it. Mikey's seen it. Who else has seen it? Ann's seen it. Elton, you've seen it? Oh, yes. Yes. You've seen it? The, 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 the God list. Okay. And it's what is that God list? It's like I'm saying that if, uh, if people are to be part of a working class intelligentsia or developing um, a new civilization or equipping a future generation with the means to do so, which is what I feel the most called towards not being it, but helping equip it, right? Um, then what would they have to be proficient in? What would they have to be conscious of? What would they have to be thinking through? Not just specific niche sciences, not just specific niche maths, not just specific areas of philosophy, but just like love and friendship, virtue, ethics, morality, a whole course on each of those things, right? 
a whole course on critique of political economy, a whole course on introduction to the old left, a whole course on introduction to the new left, a whole course on, you know, uh, bourgeois freedom and the thinkers that contributed to the notions of that and then the critiques of that. And that's all just courses under the side of political and social theory. But I just think that these are prerequisites to the kinds of conversations that I want to be having. And I want to be having them with you all. And so I really appreciate you all coming. And I hope that though we'll be moving and though we won't always be here, that we'll be able to do stuff more often because I'm going to be working wage labor jobs less. I'll be able to do a lot more of this kind of organizing. And that's why we're going to close out with playing the video, the short film here of Bert talking. All right, hold on. Before you play it, I got one more thing to say. I do want to acknowledge you, not just as an organizer or a theorist, but as a friend. Because for me, and Dave knows this better than anybody, I have this ability to just sit in a coffee shop and write stuff and not do anything with it. Like I, I, We talk about psychoanalysis a lot. Somehow my death drive or my form of enjoyment is looped on just studying and writing theory. If it wasn't for Dave, my blog wouldn't have happened. The dangerous maybe wouldn't exist. It was Dave saying, you got you to gotta do this. You got to do this. It was Dave who organized it where I got to teach my first public lecture at Boise State University. It was Dave who got me to, I had done a couple little videos on YouTube about Lacan years ago, but I didn't really enjoy the video making process, so I never did anymore. But it was Dave who got me to come back and do uh these talks with him on Lacan and Zizek which have been very successful for us right um and it's Dave who's making it possible for me to get to finally teach an actual course on a great text which has always been a dream of mine and so for me I'm not I don't have an activist bone in my body or an organizing bone in my like I just do this stuff because I love it um so I'm greatly indebted to Dave as a collaborator, but more importantly, as a friend for helping me figure out how to share my work, uh, get the ball rolling. And in the future, I, I'm working on three books and I've been working on books for a while, but Dave's going to help me make me realize that too. So this is a thank you to you. Uh, I love you. And I'm, this is a new chapter and I'm proud of you. And Thank you for everything you've done for me. It, I would not be doing what I'm doing without you. And let's keep it going. And happy birthday. <laughs> nobody, nobody, like, I was doing this shit by myself. Nobody supported me in what I do. Now, I look, I am very blessed to have had really great lifelong friendships. I love my friends. I am very lucky in that regard, but none of them are philosophers. None of them are theorists and they don't get, even if I explain concepts to them while we're at the bar, it's not their life. Dave's the first person who truly, besides Doug Washer, I got to give Doug his props, but Dave's the one who, who was there to support me and help me get the blog going Get making videos. Now we're going to teach courses. We're going to publish books. We have all kinds of things in the works. And that is Dave. So thank you, Dave. Thank Dave. you. Yeah, what a, what a treat. What a 
What a good birthday present is to hear that. Also, Anne gave me this hoodie I'm wearing. It's My Chemical Romance. I feel it's like they're one of my oldest loves as far as like bands go. And actually, they went very mainstream. I don't think they ever sold out. So it's what it's, a, but they do come from the underground, from the post hardcore underground. So, um, yeah, I feel very loved today. I really appreciate it. It means a lot. Thanks, everybody. Okay, now we're going to play this thing and uh, then close out. So here we go. Let's, uh, let's see if it works. So everyone, I wish I could full screen it for everyone in this room, but it is full screen for everybody who's watching from YouTube. And then you all uh, in, the, in the Zoom chat, you'll just be able to see it small, I guess. So here we go. I couldn't believe it when I saw that poster. Bold real art in Boise fucking Idaho. Are you kidding me? It was virtually an, an answer to an unspoken prayer, you know, really was. And I just couldn't believe that somebody was interested in the things that I was interested in, that I had been interested in for years and had kind of given up on in, in futility. I'd labored in solitude for so long I had no one to talk to about it, no one to bounce ideas off of. It, it just vastly accelerated my ability, to, I don't get too philosophical, to interrogate, to inquire, and to see connections between things. And so the theory underground that Dave is developing in this mission is, is trying to reach an audience of people who aren't just doing philosophy in a university setting. Why is there an advantage to doing philosophy outside of an academic right. setting? Well, the neat thing is that you can really drill down. You know, when you're in school, you, know, you don't you have to do 50 things, and you do them all partially. And uh, it's like you're digging a well. And you're digging very shallow wells. And you can drill down deep and take your time and really get into something, especially with a company of fellows. That you get into the slipstream of, of a great philosopher, and you just have to take the deep dive. Uh, but initially, a lot of these philosophers, they're speaking to a tradition they're trying to resolve specific problems, and they just assume you know what those are, that you've had their life experience. So the first time you read read them, you're, you're just trying to get the lay of the land. And you may well uh, have some uh, insights. You may wrongly associate certain things you know with what they're saying, but uh, then you'll maybe like look at a secondary text and now, oh, since you have something to bring to the table, all the lights start going off. And then when you read the philosopher the second time, you can read them more knowledgeably. And so you're really, you're looking for things you're better able to follow along. Uh, you're not left behind so much. Uh, the third reading though, and it's, these are for profound books. I mean, you don't have to read everything like this. But for a, a profound text, the third reading is where you've learned enough that you relate it to everything else you know, that you begin to see the connectedness between what this philosopher is doing and the uh, 
the implicit unstated um, situation that they were speaking to initially, you know something about that. And you see the connection between that and all sorts of other things. And you connect it to your life and the way you live and move through the world and the, the way you see things and interact with people. And you, you are not just absorbing, you're creating, you're a co-creator. When it's all said and done, you just have to put it into your own words. And there's a danger of reductionism there. But when you put it into your own words and you're bringing all these different strands together, it's really phenomenal. And that's what the third reading does. So, a few years ago, Dave, running you through the channel, had a Patreon going and right. discontinued accepting money for people. But since then, you have continued to make a donation monthly. Right. It's obviously very meaningful to Dave, meaningful to me as well, being Dave's partner. Right. And so, why? Why, why do you do that, <laughs> essentially? Well, Dave brings people together, whatever Dave is doing is valuable and uh, my life was completely changed and I'm grateful. I can't afford to give Dave 50 bucks a month, but I do because it brings me joy. Every, every time I get my social security, the first thing I do is send $50 to Dave and uh, my heart sings. And it's a sense of gratitude. I don't feel obligated to do it. I want to do it. And I want to do whatever I can to help Dave do for other people what he did for me. And I want uh, that to continue. And it's uh, truly, I take great joy in it. It's the best $50 I spend a month. It really is. If you can plant a seed where uh, a handful of people meet each other and they can all have the experience that we've had face-to-face um, -face with each other, that would be awesome. Hell yeah. All right, well... Should we just end it? Yeah. <laughs> we just end it? <laughs> Nick, that we're going to talk to you later. Yeah. Nick, do you want to say anything as we close out here? I just, I know I told you you'd get to, and then I just never, I never made it happen. I feel bad. I had nothing planned. So happy birthday. Really excited about this. Hope that uh, I can participate in all of the courses and um yeah hope to meet bert one day too i hope everybody gets to meet bert one day <laughs> i was lucky enough to get to go to the nelson atkins museum of art here in kansas city with bert so we also got to go to arthur bryant's for barbecue get some good coffee at broadway coffee it was a blast Yeah, get in there, Bert. I'm calling Bert over here. Come over here. Come here. I want you to. I forgot about that. So Mikey is a really good host and a tour guide, and he took me all around a couple, you know, a few years ago in Raytown in Kansas City, oh, yeah. Missouri. But he took you around, Bert. He took oh yeah, me all over town. I mean, we would have. Uh, 
we would have knocked the jockeys off the rich people's lawn if we had enough time. Absolutely. But, uh, no, we, it was just great. I mean, we uh, went to the library and the museum was great. Yeah. You, you could see all that great plunder, the cultural plunder they have in that museum. Yeah. Uh, the one you went to with me. And too. seeing the Thomas Hart Bentons up close. Those are four times more vibrant in reality than you ever see in a photograph. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it was great. Thank you, Mikey. Oh yeah. Thank you. One last, Hey, Swole, where the hell are you? What is he? Is, is he, is he watching oh, this right now? I saw him in the chat. He said, he's Oh, I'm late. Hey, it's on YouTube. You can always go back and play from the beginning. So, yeah. all right, everybody, thank you so much for joining. We are going to call it quits at this point, and the conversation continues online and IRL, where we're connected through the internet. It's weird. I don't know. I haven't figured it out yet, but we will. We will figure it out. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Later. Okay, three, two, yeah. one. <laughs> this place we have this space i pay for it we have it for another uh until nine so we have a little time to just hang out and us chat you know well you know the whole in the best sense the whole collegiality thing of face-to-face -face contact with other people the the coolest dorm room in history was at a seminary in germany when uh Hertelin Schelling and Hegel were all roommates. Can oh. you fucking imagine that? Like they bounced, how they accelerated. Holderland, their, their, Hegel, their, their development. Schelling. Uh, I mean, they 